Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It says, They came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, that when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Where we left Jesus off at the end of uh, chapter 10, he was in the home of two women who also had a brother whose names were uh, Mary and Martha. And and what Jesus was doing in their home and ultimately why that uh, event is recorded for us on the pages of Scripture is that he was laying down the singular fundamental of, uh, of what makes a productive or useful or blessed life. And that is finding the relationship that exists between devotion and duty. And you remember those two sisters, one of them very busy and the other one uh, very at ease at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus giving the word to them and to us that the one thing needful that is to be the source for everything else that happens within our lives is the time that we spend sitting at Jesus' feet. And the reason why I bring that up by way of review is because it's paramount to what happens next in the text as we come now into chapter 11. Because what we see is we see Jesus essentially practicing what he preached. He is now in a place where he himself is sitting before the feet of his father, so as for himself to obtain what he would need then to carry on in the ministry and in the duty that God had laid out before him. Now, I know I've pointed this out before, but I need to do it again. And that is that Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, dedicates more time and more uh, print to highlighting the prayer life of Jesus than any of the other gospel writers. And I believe that that was intended by the Holy Spirit for Luke to point that out. There are 11 instances within these 24 chapters where Luke goes out of his way to let us know that Jesus was praying. He prayed at his baptism, Luke tells us. He prayed after uh, the day, the, the effective day that he had ministering in Capernaum in his home, hometown. He prayed after the leper was healed and then the multitude uh, came to be healed in chapter 5. He prayed in chapter 6, the night before he chose the 12 apostles. He prayed through the night that time. In chapter 9, verse 16, he prayed during the feeding of the 5,000 when the, uh, the loaves were multiplied and the fishes. He prayed in chapter 9, verse 29, uh, before the transfiguration happened. It tells us that he was praying, and it was then that his uh, countenance was altered. Uh, we see it here in chapter 11, verse 1, that Jesus is praying in a certain place, not attached uh, to any, any um, miracle or anything that happens next, but just Luke tells us he was praying. He was praying in chapter 2, verse 19, at the Last Supper. Again, in chapter 22, at the um, Garden of Gethsemane, in chapter 23, while he was upon the cross, and then again in chapter 24, after the resurrection, when he's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the reason why I go through and and, and say all of that again and point out those uh, areas so specifically is because if we miss that, and if we overlook it in our observation of the ministry of Jesus as we seek to know him, then we'll miss the essence of the life that Jesus came to show us and to demonstrate. 
Because if Jesus, the Son of God, who came as an example to us of what life is supposed to be, if he needed to be in communion and in fellowship with his Father in order for his life to be what it was, then there's no way that we could ever expect that our lives would be effective and productive and fruitful should we choose to say, God, I can get through this life with minimal amount of time that's spent with you uh, in prayer or at your feet. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, his apostles and disciples, those that are walking with him, they have seen Jesus do everything that he's done And they've seen Jesus pray every time that he's prayed. And thus, at this point, there's a realization that's beginning to occur within their mind. Something's starting to click. And what that is, is that there is a connection between what Jesus is able to do and who he is and the prayer that he is offering day by day. There's a second realization that's coming into the mind of the disciples at this time. And that realization is that their prayer lives, the disciples, is not producing within their lives the same types of things that Jesus' prayer life is producing within his life. And so they come to him now with a question and they ask him how to pray. And the reason why they asked him to pray is because they started to begin to realize how essential and how important it was. And so what Jesus does now for the next several verses is that he gives to them an answer to their question. And the answer that he gives them comes in the form of what we traditionally call the Lord's Prayer. It probably shouldn't be called that. It probably should be called the Disciples' Prayer. Or it should be called the Lord's Model for Prayer. Uh, because this isn't what Jesus necessarily prays. It's what he taught us to pray. Now, it's important to understand that as we look at the words that Jesus gave his disciples as he taught them to pray, that we understand that this was not necessarily a script, that it wasn't intended by him to be something that we just memorize and recite verbatim and then be able to say that we've had a very effective prayer life. And we know that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's because in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus taught the same thing on a separate occasion, he prefaced it by saying, after this manner, pray, or according to this pattern, pray. And then he gave to them almost exactly the same words that are given here in Luke when the disciples come and ask him to pray. The other reason we know that this wasn't intended to be a scripted prayer that is constantly recited is that because if it was, then we would see a whole lot more powerful Christians that look a whole lot more like Jesus than we do. Because a lot of people do recite this prayer verbatim and it isn't producing within their lives the same type of power that Jesus possessed and manifested uh, within his ministry when he was on the earth. Now, having said that, it is also true that there's nothing wrong with saying this prayer verbatim. And so Jesus gives them these words, this model, and what it is is a framework through which we can approach God effectively, uh, which when we pour out our own heart with our own words, according to the model that Jesus gives, we find that it is very effective. And so it says that Jesus responded in verse 2. 
It says that he said unto them, when you pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first thing that strikes me right off the bat as I look at what Jesus said in teaching them to pray is that there is not in the entire sum total of this prayer one singular uh, um, personal pronoun throughout the whole thing. Never once is there an I, a me, or a my. But in every instance, it's our, us, and we. It is in the plural all the way throughout from beginning to end. And, and by doing that, there are two things that are being accomplished. By, by us taking the prayer that we offer to God and making it plural instead of singular, what we are doing is that we are automatically interceding for the entire body of Christ that exists within the world at the same time that we're praying uh, for the needs that we have as well. That's number one. Number two is that it's it's an understanding or it gives to us an understanding that at any given moment, and in fact, probably at every given moment, we are also being prayed for by Christians all around the world that are praying. And that God is not only hearing their prayer on their behalf that's being offered, but he's also hearing it for us as well. And we're benefiting from that prayer. Now, this also does something to me. And what it does is it, it makes me a little bit disconcerted, a little bit uncomfortable. And here's why. Because I'm a, an extremely greedy man. And, and so what, what happens in my mind when I begin to meditate on this and ponder it is I begin to think, okay, Lord, I mean, I know that I am just one of however many millions of people that are alive on planet Earth right now that you're working with in their life. And I can't help but feel that my prayer is just a tiny singular drop in the bucket in terms of all the prayers that are offered and all the needs that you're meeting. And I'm afraid, Lord, that if I dilute the things that I need and spread them out over the whole body of Christ, that at that point it becomes absolutely impotent and unable to do anything within my own life. Well, the Bible teaches us that that's not the case with God. That when we make our prayers plural and we pray the same things upon others that we pray for ourselves, that God is able to do in our lives to the same degree what he would be able to do should it be just offered for us. It's one of those instances where we must believe Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, that we're not to trust in our own understanding, but we're to lean on him in all of that, not leaning upon uh, what we would think logically. Then Jesus says uh, the word Father. He says, Our Father, which art in heaven. And this also, to me, is amazing. Because if you think of all of the various things or names that Jesus could have ascribed to the Father in this universal prayer that's being made, why did he choose to say Father? I mean, why didn't he say Adonai? The Lord, like was said in the very beginning, or Elohim. Why didn't he say, uh, you know, El Shaddai, the the everlasting God or the almighty God? Why not El Olam or Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider, or Jehovah Ra, the Lord our shepherd? Why, Why Father, a title that is so seldom used throughout the Old Testament scriptures as people would address and come to God uh, in prayer? Why would he say that? Well, First of all, because what it does is it implies something on our part and it also implies something on his part. On our part, 
it is for us the reminder that our entitlement to be able to come to God and ask for things is based upon a family relationship. And that is, and that Jesus said it, that you must be born again. And that you must be born into the family of God and belong to him through covenant and by family relationship or by adoption in order for our prayers to be heard. If you ask just about anybody in the world if they pray, almost everyone will say, yes, I pray. And in fact, most would say that they pray daily. But what qualifies a prayer from being heard versus a prayer not being heard is, first of all, and it's paramount, are you actually in the family of God? Because the Bible says that the ear of the Lord isn't short that it can't hear and his hand isn't short that it can't save, but it says that your sins have separated you from your God. And until something is done that takes away the sin issue, which is the blood of Jesus Christ and the new covenant, new birth that brings us into the family of God, then that sin remains and thus God says, I will not hear. But when a person is born again, the sum total of our sin is placed upon Christ and that automatically grants us access to the Father whenever we would come to him in prayer. So for us, it's a reminder, am I in the family of God? It also is for us an exhortation to remember that we are to be in submission. Just as any father would demand of his offspring that they are in submission to him, it in our minds applies or implies that we are in submission to our father and that there is a reverence or a respect for who he is and for what he says because he is father and if he is father, then that makes me the child and the child is always under uh, the father's care. Now, On his part, what does it imply that he is our father? Number one is it implies access. What child doesn't have immediate and total access to their father whenever they need it? And God wanted us to make sure that we understand that when we pray, we have access to him, that that shouldn't be something that we doubt. It also implies on his part a willingness, that what father isn't willing to depose of his own resources or help where he can to meet the needs of his sons and his daughters. He is willing to help and it also implies commitment that any father that is a good father is going to faithfully raise his kids and be faithful to them all the way up through their entire lives. You never stop being a father if you're a good father and thus Jesus chooses in teaching us to pray to address him as our Father. And then he goes on to say this. He says, Our Father, which art in location, heaven, and then he adds to that, hallowed or holy be your name. So there's two aspects in that. Number one is location, and that is that God dwells within the heavens. Now that is not an element of bragging. Okay, well, I'm in heaven and you're not. So there, have that. That's not the idea. But the idea behind us ascribing the location of God is that heaven is a higher ranking realm in authority than earth is. And thus, if someone is in heaven, they are automatically outranking those that are in earth. So you're going to something automatically that's higher than the realm that we operate within right now. But on top of that, not only are we going outside or above the ranks of anything within this world, but then he says to ascribe holiness unto him, that hallowed be thy name. And there is only one thing 
or one person rather, that is holy in all of existence, and that is God himself, at least holy in this context of being hallowed. The angels, the highest angels in heaven, ascribe holiness to God. And what that implies for you and I is that not only is God in heaven, but he is, in fact, the high king of heaven. So not only above every authority that's in earth, but he also dwells with all authority in heaven and upon earth. And thus, in our prayer, we have access to the one who is the high king over all that is in heaven and that is upon uh, the earth. And so when we pray that, we're ascribing to God his authority to be able to answer our prayers and to be the Lord over our lives. And thus we're giving God his place, his proper place within creation and also within our lives. Then Jesus says, as he goes on there in verse uh, two, he says, after saying, hallowed be thy name, he says, say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. The next thing that Jesus tells us to pray is he says, thy kingdom come. And what that is, when we pray that, and we let that reality and that truth come into our hearts when we're approaching God in prayer, is it's reminding us of His promise that this world is not the end-all, be-all for our existence. That we are citizens, even though we dwell on earth physically presently, we are citizens of a completely different kingdom that exists in a completely different realm and that one day that kingdom is going to be manifested in such a way that that kingdom will be the only kingdom and that is the hope of every believer, every child of God in every age is that his kingdom would ultimately come. And so it's a reminder to him that he promised that this is going to end someday. And it's a reminder to us that soon all that is seen will be no more and that there will only be God and his kingdom. And so we wait for it. And then he says to pray when you pray, say, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. And sometimes these are the hardest words for a Christian to pray and actually mean it from their heart is that God, before I ask you for a single petition and let you know that even the smallest shred of what's in my heart today to pour out before you, I am yielding first that your will is sovereign over my will and that it's your will that is to be done uh, as a result of these prayers and not what I am asking for. And so the situations that I'm in today and the outcomes of those situations is all in your hand for you to do as you will in those things and not as I will. And it's important for us to understand that prayer is not me getting my will done in heaven, but rather prayer is God getting his will done on earth. And thus the goal of my prayer, if I'm going to have a fruitful prayer life, is not getting God to bend to what I want, but rather it's bringing me into harmony with his plan and what he wants for my life. And he he kind of adds on to the end of that, as in heaven, so in earth. So your will be done just like it is in in, in heaven, so let it be done on earth. What's the purpose of uh, saying that in prayer and acknowledging uh, God's authority in heaven, both in heaven and on earth? Here's what it is, is that there's not a single being in heaven that ever questions God's wisdom or God's process or God's outcomes. That in heaven, whatever it is that God does, 
it, it is an absolute agreement by everyone that is there. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, when the whole thing is over, and everyone who's going to be in heaven is in heaven, and all the angels are there, and we're all around the throne, and God is there, it says that the, the, the words that proceed out of the mouth of those that are gathered are true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. True and righteous are your judgments. When we see everything, that will be the declaration of our heart. That God, every choice that you made, the way that you did everything on earth, it was perfectly right. And if I knew then, while on earth not understanding what you were doing, what I know now, then I would have done the same exact thing that you did when you moved in whatever situation and however you moved in it. And that is something that we are to bring our hearts in line with before we ever even offer a single petition, that his will would be done on earth as it is uh, also in heaven. Now, what's interesting to me about um, everything that Jesus has given them and given us to pray thus far throughout this chapter, all of this is, is spoken or done before one word of petition is offered to God. We have not yet asked God for one thing that concerns our lives. All of this thus far has been bringing us into the proper perspective to seek God rightly. That's all that's, all that's happened thus far. We've called him Father, and thus we've acknowledged that we're welcomed and that he's committed to us. We've acknowledged that he's in heaven and that he's holy, that he's the high king to be respected and revered. We've prayed that his kingdom would come, which, if you think about it, neutralizes a whole lot of the things that we want to pray for, doesn't it? I mean, how do you pray, God, let your kingdom come today? Can I buy a Lamborghini? You know, it really does. It kind of just... It filters out, it changes our whole mindset in coming to prayer. We, we say, thy kingdom come. Never mind. You know, whatever it was that I was going to pray. And then finally, thy will be done is a surrendering to his wisdom and to his authority. And thus Jesus is teaching us this, and pay attention, is that as we pray and meditate upon these things in our own words from our heart, it brings us into the right frame of mind to pray. And here's the amazing thing, is that this is one half of the entire prayer. I mean, if you go through and you look at the elements, how many things that Jesus has us pray for, there's eight in the whole prayer. And we've already looked at four of them. And four out of eight, one half of the prayer, is just getting us into the right perspective uh, that we might seek uh, God correctly. Now, Oftentimes, I find that the reason why prayer falls flat in the lives of God's people, in my own life, as I hear other people and interact with other Christians, the reason why a lot of prayer falls flat is because of failure in this part of it right here. In coming to God and getting my heart into the proper perspective, who He is, who I am, whose will is going to get done, what's important, what's not, all of those things are important. And here's what I've discovered is that if you fail in this part, you're going to fail in the rest. You're going to find, you know, I prayed today, but I feel like I didn't connect with heaven. I asked of God, but I don't feel uh, the same burden lifted that was lifted by Hannah. Remember when Hannah prayed and she walked out different than she came in? She said, man, I just unloaded and I feel God heard me. And sometimes we pray and we say, I, I prayed, I went through the motions, 
But for some reason, where was God? And oftentimes I find that it's because of failure here. It's failure to come before him in the right way, uh, with the right frame of mind, and give God time to make my heart soft and, 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 and adjust it that I'm in harmony with him. Now, on the other side of that, I've also discovered this, that if I get this part of the prayer time right, then the rest can be a failure and it's still a win. I can go in and get just get before the Lord and just remember that he is father and that he is perfect and that his mind is right and that his decisions are right and that his will is perfect no matter what it is. And then I could totally miss the mark in everything else I pray or run out of time and not be able to pray anymore. And I still leave the prayer closet that day feeling like I connected with heaven. And so important is this part of just setting our hearts before the Lord uh, in all of that. And so then he goes on and from verse 3 through the end, now he gives us four things that are, are, are kind of under the banner of our petitions or the things that we would ask God for when we come to him in prayer. And the first one, which is probably the one that's most important to most of us, and so Jesus puts it first, is provision. He says in verse 3, he says, give us day by day our daily bread. And so, um, you know, now he, he, he puts it before us that we're to pray uh, for the things that we need on a daily basis. When we pour out our hearts to God according to the needs that we have. And we have needs that are, first of all, daily. Notice that Jesus says that we do it day by day. And just as we have needs physically day by day, we also have needs spiritually day by day. And so thus we must pray daily that God would do these things. And so this is the part of the prayer where we unload before him. And we, we begin to cast our cares, like Peter said. And, and whatever that is, and on any given day, that whatever that is that's weighing upon our hearts, those things that we have need of, whether it be the generic things, or whether it be for that day, those specific things that, we're, that are weighing on us that we must bring to him, we are welcomed in the presence of God to pour out the, the, the contents of our heart before him uh, in, in whatever way and for however long it takes and without any limitation to the things that we are uh, called to ask for or to pray uh, for our daily needs. Then the, the next thing that he calls us to pray for is for pardon. He says in verse 4, he says, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And so the, the, the next thing is that we're to, as we pray, we're to give God a moment or a time where he is allowed to just search our hearts and to put his finger upon any area of our life that is an offense or an affront to him. And that it's in that time then as God begins to do that, that those things as they come to the surface, that we then have the, the, the privilege to confess those things to God and to ask for his forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that it doesn't take a whole lot of time for God to put his finger upon those areas of my life that are an offense or an affront to him. If I just give him a, a, a little moment and I just begin to say, God, search my heart. What in me today is a weed that's growing in the soil that doesn't belong there? And, and before I'm even done saying the words, I already know what the weeds are, how much they've grown, how long I've let them stay there. You know, I, I know what the heart, I know every, I'm, I'm already, there, if I'm honest, and that's my opportunity then to say, okay, Lord, I confess those things to be contrary to your will for my life and I ask for your forgiveness and that you would remove those things from my life. 
And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says that if we confess our sins to Him, that He is faithful and just to forgive us, first of all, and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's pardon that comes in the presence of God, but then with that pardon, there also comes cleansing or catharizing as God removes the power of those things and pulls them out by their roots as I'm willing then to, to allow him uh, to do that. And so we come to God and we find pardon. However, what we find is that that pardoning is conditional because Jesus says when you pray, say, forgive us our sins or our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us or for those that have sinned against us, which means this that when we pray, we are also to take a moment and we're to search our own heart and ask ourselves the question, is there anything in my heart where I'm harboring bitterness towards someone else? Is there any area of my life right now or any person in my life that I am holding them down because of something that they did for me or I'm holding on to that in some uh, way? And, and so God says at that moment you are to forgive and you are to release that uh, completely, automatically. One of the things that happens to me uh, in, this, in this vein when I'm praying and confessing my own sin, and you know, I think that the more we grow in the Lord, the more we realize how wretched we are. We see our sin in a different light and we see the depths of it and how you know, like the, the, the sins on the outside have their root in stuff that's deep inside that's just dirty, you know? And, and, and so what happens is in my mind, as I see God forgiving me of my sins, I always picture the cross. And on the cross, I see myself at the foot of it, and I see Jesus there hanging, and I see the Son of God bleeding out upon the ground because he's absorbing the wrath of God that my sin paid for. And I try to, to bring myself to that and to really understand what it cost God to forgive my sins and what he was willing to do in order to make a provision in a way that my sin could be forgiven. And the longer I walk with the Lord, the more um, grateful I am, but also the more disgusted I am with myself. Because I, I say, Lord, I don't even want you to know this is in me. And yet you're not, you're not only just forgiving it, but you're taking it from me and putting it in yourself. So you're intimate with my filth. Lord, you know what I am to the very core. And I see that picture and I go, God, I don't deserve to be this. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be cleansed. And that's what happens. This is what's supposed to happen within our hearts. But think about this. For us to then turn around and hold anything against someone else that they've done to us. To be able to say, okay, Jesus, I know that you've taken my filth out of me by your grace, but I want you to get them bad. Do you realize how terribly inconsistent that is? I mean, because what you've done is you've just, you've just opened up a whole new can of filth <laughs> inside, you know. And, and Jesus says, listen, I am not going to hear your prayer for pardon if you're not willing to forgive those that have in any way wronged you, no matter how bad it is or how deep it is or how effective it was in playing out in consequences throughout the, the, you know, the, the coming weeks or months or years of your life. You are, we are, to forgive, the Bible says, as we have been forgiven. And it is so incredibly important a thing uh, that we do that. Do you realize that there will not be one squabble that will be addressed in heaven between two of God's people? Not one. 
You know how you, you could think that sometimes? You're like, you know what? I forgive you for now, but when we get to heaven, God's going to sort this out. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's not going to bring it up. And if you want to bring it up, he's going to say, are you sure you want to bring this up? <laughs> because it takes two. And we'll say, nope, no, it's all good. Here's the crown. Cast it before you, Lord. It's all, all done, all forgiven. So important that we forgive. I'm also glad, uh, as I consider Jesus asking us to pray for forgiveness, I'm very glad that this isn't first on the list. This actually comes number five, number six, down, down from, from where we've begun praying. I would think that this would have to be number one, that God, you're not even going to hear my prayer until I get in, into this repentance mode. And, and, and Jesus doesn't imply that at all. Listen, understand this, Christian, that the moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ, your sins were completely forgiven and the standing that you have before God is holy and righteous because of him and not because of you. And thus we enter boldly into the throne of grace. Now, once we're there, there is some cleansing and foot washing that has to take place. But Jesus doesn't put it on the top of the list in terms of priority. The um, seventh thing that Jesus tells them that they should say when they pray is that uh, they would be led. He says, forgive us um, and as we forgive. And then he says, and lead us. Now, so often we just kind of dovetail that sequentially right into the next part, which is not into temptation. But that's not the way it reads. It says, and lead us. And then after that, there's another part, which is not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is a very critical component in our walk with the Lord as we go through this world um, following with him, that we would be led. Oftentimes, what we ask God when we pray is that he would reveal to us. We say, God, reveal what I'm supposed to do in this situation or direct me in what is coming and what I'm supposed to do. And oftentimes, God isn't willing to reveal what we're to do or to direct us in terms of what we are doing. Sometimes he does. When we need it, he tells us ahead of time what we're to do. But most often, the way God works within our lives is that he leads us. And that is that as we, we put our lives before him and we surrender everything to him, we walk the walk that he's given us to walk and he makes sure that things happen sequentially as they are supposed to. I, I, I'm, um, I'm not a huge sports guy, but I do like the NFL just a little bit. And, uh, um, you know, one of the things when we would play football growing up and, and different things is that you would have the quarterback uh, and then you would have the receiver. And a good quarterback would say to the receiver, he would say, okay, here's the pattern. You're going to line up wide out right. You're going to go 10 steps straight out, and then you're going to cut right three steps, and then look at me, and the ball will be there. And the whole idea behind that is that the defender doesn't have any clue that the ball is coming because the receiver is not looking at the quarterback. He's been told what to do, and he follows the directions that have been given. And when he turns around, a good quarterback is going to have the ball right there. He's going to turn, the ball's going to be there, and he's going to have it. And that's exactly the picture that, that we have here as Jesus says, pray that you would be led. Because what God's given us is he's given us a whole lifetime worth of instruction. He says, walk this way. Walk in my commands. Walk in my ways. And if you just do the things that I've told you to do and you align your life with the things that I've said, then when you need or whatever... You're going to turn around. The ball's going to be there. Whatever it is that you need at that moment, I'm going to make sure that, that it meets you. And I never, ever, ever fail. I've never had a bad pass. 
and, and you have a Velcro suit on, so you're not going to drop the ball. And if you do, you'll get another shot. <laughs> you know. But he says to lead us, uh, and he absolutely does. And then finally, uh, he, he says, when you pray, say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so the final thing that he tells them to pray for is for protection. Now, I don't know if you know this, but um, this world is not a very safe place uh, for someone who wants to live a godly life, if you want to have that godly life preserved, uh, undefiled and untainted. I love what the, the, the hymn writer says in Amazing Grace. He says, through many toils and trials and snares, we have already come. And isn't it the truth? Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Paul exhorted the church in the book of Acts and he said uh, that he, it says that through much tribulation and affliction we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and over and over again he says to them, you guys understand this concept because you're living it out, is that there's tribulation that's attached to the, the, the pathway that we walk within this life. But Jesus said this to us. He said, I send you forth as lambs in the midst of wolves. And if we keep our eyes upon the shepherd, he can lead us in such a way as that we are not harmed by the hostility of the environment that we are walking through. And that is the promise that he gives to us. But part of him fulfilling that promise is our prayer in saying, God, please, this day, would you keep me from being tempted in ways that you know that I'm weak? And may I be kept from evil that it would not afflict me or would not uh, take me down. The Bible talks in the book of Ephesians about the evil day. And the Apostle Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And you know what the evil day is? I mean, there's probably a lot of different evil days that all of us have, but I'll tell you what one of them is. An evil day is when our temptation matches with our desire, which matches with an opportunity. That when temptation and desire and opportunity all meet together, that's an evil day. That's going to be a rough one. If only two of those things meet, it's, it's a lot easier to weather that storm. I mean, you could be tempted and you could have a desire, but you don't have an opportunity. You can get through that one. You could have an opportunity and you could have a desire, but the temptation isn't there at that moment. It's not just not showing itself. You're going to get through it. But when those three come, watch out. And Jesus tells us when you pray, Ask God, Lord, may those three things never come together within my life, that I don't have to be one of those uh, that are shipwrecked in their faith or that I lose ground or lose time uh, because of sin within my life. And so Jesus gives to them uh, this model that they can um, tailor their prayer life according to it, that they might see fruit and success within it. And then in the epilogue of the prayer, in verses 5 through 13, Jesus kind of gives a little bit of commentary on the things that he has spoken to them. And in it, he gives them two parables uh, in order to expound or to clarify. It says in verse 5, it says that he said unto them, which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give to you. And so Jesus paints this scenario, this picture, of a man who all of a sudden comes upon an unexpected need. 
He has people visit him from a far place and he's got no food to set before him. And the stores are closed. There's no options for him to provide provisions for the people that are in his house. And so the only thing he can think of is to go next door and to ask his friend if he can borrow a few loaves of bread so that he can give something to his uh, fellow traveler. But as he goes there, the hour is late, and as he knocks, he's met by a friend who's annoyed. The guy says, what are you doing? I'm in bed. My kids are in bed with me. I, I don't want to give you anything. But the implication is that he continues to knock. He keeps asking. And so Jesus says in verse 8, I say unto you that though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, that is his persistence, the fact that he's annoying this man, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now you say, oh, really, Lord? I mean, we've gone through all this teaching on prayer and here you're painting the picture that God is annoyed with me at my coming and that I'm not even really in the category of children. I'm a friend and I can't... What in the world? No, no. Here's the idea. This isn't a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. Watch what Jesus says. He says, and I say unto you. The application is not that the Father is annoyed, but I say unto you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. Now he immediately goes into the second parable, which interprets the first. He says, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask for a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? How many of us do that to our kids when they ask us for something? Dad, can I have a piece of toast? And I look at my wife and I say, watch this, honey, I'm going to do the scorpion one. You know, and I turn around and, you know, hey, here you go, have, you know, who would do that? That It just doesn't happen that way if, if you ask. So Jesus says, if you then, being evil, and that evil is in comparison to your heavenly Father, and compared to him, we are all inherently evil. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? And so in this application that Jesus is giving to us, what he is teaching us here is that God is not a a, a distant acquaintance who simply puts up with us And then if we annoy him and bother him enough that finally he'll arise and give us what we need. He's not a frustrated friend, but rather he is a loving father. And prayer, Jesus is teaching us, is not us overcoming God's reluctance, but rather it's laying hold on his willingness. That he's a father who's willing to give and that he wants to uh, provide for our needs. And not only is he a father, but that he is a good father. So what is Jesus teaching us uh, in this as his disciples ask the question, Lord, uh, teach us to pray? And, and here's what Jesus wants us to know, paramount, is that we are accepted when we approach God by faith in the name of Jesus. If you think about all of the things that Jesus could have expounded on after giving this prayer. I mean, he had eight different elements of the prayer that he could have expounded upon. But the one thing that he chose to make sure that they were grounded in, well aware of, 
was the fact that they were welcomed into the presence of God. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. These are important verses. Don't tune me out yet, but we're almost finished. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul highlights the benefits that we have as Christians. And he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but we also have access into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Do you hear what he's saying to us? He's saying that because of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God, but we also have access to God. We can come to him unashamed at any time because of him. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul would go on to say, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And the word Abba in the Greek is, the, is what we would translate into the English, Daddy. That we have the same approachable way to come to God as, as a little child would come and say, Daddy. And, and he says that that's the spirit that we've been given. It's the spirit of adoption. To the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul would write again to the church in verse 3, and he would say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us, think of that, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, all because of Jesus, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, were his kids, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Then it goes on to say, in whom we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. We have access to God. We belong to him. We're his sons. We're his daughters. In Psalm chapter 46, verse 1, it says that God is our refuge and our strength an ever-present help in trouble. That's who he is to us. And it was so important that Jesus give to us the understanding that this is the way that we come to God. And it's as if he's saying that if you can grasp this, if you can grasp the Father part of this, and you can understand all that it means, then all the rest of your prayer life will fall into place. Uh, The final word that Jesus gives at the end of this passage concerns the Holy Spirit. He, he, he does something different here than he did uh, in, in the other place that he spoke this. In the other place that he spoke this, he said, how much more will your heavenly Father not give good gifts to those that ask? But here he says at the end, how much more will your Father not give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? Why does he say that in attaching it to this concept of prayer? We pray for so many more things than just the Holy Spirit. Here's why. Because the Holy Spirit plays a paramount role in our prayer lives. It is almost impossible for us to pray effectively without the Holy Spirit helping us to do it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul would say this. He says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts, that's our hearts, 
knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And I found this to be true in my own life is that one of the things that I ask God for continually as I'm approaching him in prayer is that God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit to help me pray effectively according to your will? Because Lord, what I know I need right now is you, but I certainly don't know how to pray right now. And I know, Lord, that there's things in my life that need to be brought to you, but I don't even know how to frame those words. And Lord, I know that there's things you want me to bring to you right now, but I don't even know what they are. And so, Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, put an unction and a drive within me, Lord, that as I begin to pray, I'd feel you lifting those prayers off and I'd feel that there's power behind them and and a sense that you're in it and that I'm interceding according to the will of God. Uh, A couple of quick closing thoughts as we um, end our Bible study tonight on this most important topic. I think it's important that we understand this, is that above all else, that God is interested within our lives, what he wants first and foremost is that he wants a relationship with us. He's not so much looking that we would be, you know, missionaries that turn the world upside down or that we uh, walk this life sinlessly perfect and that we never screw up. But what he is very interested in is that we have an intimate, close, daily walk with him and that we're growing constantly closer to him moment by moment. The reason why, uh, you know, the, the thing that brings that to bear is prayer within our lives. It's so important. In John chapter um, 14, there's a little passage where Jesus has a, a small interaction um, with one of the 12 apostles. He said this, and it was just before he would go to the cross. He said, at that day, when, once he leaves, you shall know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and that I am in you. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So Jesus is promising that he's going to make himself known to those that are his. Now, one of the disciples was saying, well, how? So he asks, verse 22, he says, Judas says unto him, not Iscariot, the other one, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not unto the world? How does this work, this invisible relationship thing? And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and we will make our abode or our home with him. And what Jesus is saying is that there is absolutely a relationship that God wants to have with each one of us, wherein he is making himself known to us in ways that no one else knows that he is making himself known to us. And what I can tell you and what the Bible teaches very expressly is that apart from prayer, it is impossible for us to experience that relationship. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, In my creature impatience, I am often caused to wish that there were some way to bring modern Christians into a deeper spiritual life painlessly by short, easy lessons. But no such wishes, or I'm sorry, but such wishes are vain. No shortcut exists. God has not bowed to our nervous haste nor embraced the methods of our machine age. It is well that we accept the hard truth now. The man who would know God must give time to him. He must count no time wasted which is spent in the cultivation of his acquaintance. He must give himself to meditation and to prayer. So God wants relationship and that relationship is impossible apart from prayer. Another thing I would share with you is this, is that in my own life, as I've walked with God, and I'm no veteran in this thing by any means. 
But I can tell you that every victory, every breakthrough, every time that I've seen God show up in my life in any way, it has happened as a result of prayer. As much as good counsel has helped me in certain things and as much as seeking God in wisdom or, 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 or reading books or anything else, it, it is ultimately once I've come to God in desperate and honest, sincere prayer that I've seen God do the most uh, powerful things in my life that couldn't be done any other way. And that's going to be the same for every one of us. God will not let our devices work. It will ultimately come through prayer. I'll also say this, and this is just personal, my own experience in, in, in walking with the Lord in, in my own prayer life. What I have found personally, and maybe you have too, is that any time that I have given myself to a particular model or mode or method of prayer, it has ultimately been the death of my prayer life. I, I remember um, hearing a teaching and then reading a book a while later called Praying Through the Tabernacle. And it was basically taking all of the elements of the tabernacle, applying them to our Christian experience and praying through those things. You know, confessing our sins, going to the lampstand and praying for missionaries and going to the laver and washing in the word and, you know, going through all these things and ultimately end up in the Holy of Holies. When I first heard that, I said, yes, amen. Lord, this is great. This is going to help my prayer life. And as I began to do that for a couple of days, it totally crippled my prayer life. Because there were times I didn't have time to pray through the tabernacle. I needed to go right into the Holy of Holies and sit on his lap and just spend time with God. And I felt that I couldn't because I hadn't gone to, for, for, to, through each of the successive stages. And I believe that even taking the model that Jesus gives us here, if we apply it the wrong way, we can do damage to our prayer life. It isn't about going through and making sure we say each thing and cross each barrier. It's about understanding what's important to pray for and then pouring out our own heart before the Lord in our own words and being before him uh, consistently. And, uh, and, and then just, uh, of course, the, the need for the Holy Spirit's help in the things that we pray for. So may God give us wisdom. May he give us prayer. May the answer uh, to our prayers be more prayer. And may we experience a deeper and, and closer, more intimate walk with him as we pray. So why don't we pray together uh, tonight as we close the service. The musicians can come. Father, we uh, do take this time right now, Lord. And, and we're so grateful, Lord, as we sit here that that question was asked to you that day. Because in it, Lord, we were um, afforded access to the answer. And Lord, we... If there's anything that we need above anything else, Lord, we need more prayer. And so we ask, Lord, that even now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, even as you said you would give the Holy Spirit to those that ask, Lord, that you would fill each one of us right now, Lord, and that you would renew the call to prayer. Lord, that we would see that there's the hand of a willing Father and the heart of a loving God that longs to spend time with his children. And Lord, we're asking tonight that we would experience that, not just in our minds, but in our lives. So fill us, Lord, overflowing. Give us confidence again. Inspire us, Lord. And Lord, in these days that we live in, Lord, we know that there's so much going on in the world and there are so many needs, Father. And so we're just asking you now that we'd become a praying church and a praying people. And Lord, that we would see great things happen as we give ourselves to you, just as Jesus gave himself to you. So we ask these things tonight. Lord, may you do them in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.